0: Turning to to God's Word this morning, back in Ephesians chapter 2 after our break last week for Easter. And if you think back two weeks ago, you may remember that to begin chapter 2, God, through Paul, had reminded us of the biography of being a Christian, that each one of us reminded of our sin, that we walk in trespasses and sins and deserve the wrath of God, but that God has made us alive In Christ Jesus and that God has raised us into the heavenly places with Christ Jesus and that God has seated us with him in Christ but having outlined this biography Paul now concludes this first section in Ephesians 2 by saying really all of this comes down to one clear conclusion salvation is always and entirely a gift that is given to us by the grace of God it's not something we do, it's not something we earn, but it is something that is done for us through Jesus Christ, and it's that fact that makes all the difference in the world. Now, in offering this summary statement, Paul pens some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 probably belong with John three sixteen, and maybe Psalm 23 is some of the most well-known words in Scripture. And rightly so, given the importance of what these verses tell us. So if you would, take your Bibles. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, how we thank you for your word that you've given to us. Would you use these very familiar verses this morning to assure us of your grace in Christ Jesus and to draw us to praise your name this morning? We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Reverend Raphael. Warnock has been in the news a fair bit so far in 2021. He's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which is the church that Martin Luther King Jr. once pastored and Reverend Warnock has been in the news mostly so far because he ran for the United States Senate and won a narrow Senate victory in the runoff races in Georgia early in January. Reverend Warnock was in the news this past week not for his political victory, but for his theology. Last Sunday, which was Easter Sunday, Warnack tweeted, the meaning of Easter is really more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus. Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now, as you can imagine, this tweet caused a bit of a firestorm on social media. Debates broke out about the role of good works and grace and salvation. And if you've been following with us through Ephesians so far, you can probably recognize that diminishing the significance of Jesus' resurrection or stating that we are able to save ourselves by helping others does not at all square with what God says in His Word. But my guess is even if we're quick to disagree and know that, We may still wrestle to practically live out God's grace in our own lives. And so fortunately, we don't need a Twitter debate to wrestle with these questions because we have here in God's Word, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses that speak directly to us and remind us of the glorious truths of the gospel and guide us as we seek to live them out in our lives. And if we're to summarize the main point of these verses, I think we could summarize it this way. Salvation is entirely a gift from God to us, and a work of God in us. I want to look at that this morning, and so we'll begin with verses 8 and 9, which declare that salvation is a gift from God to us. Now, Paul's just rehearsed the blessings of God's salvation. He's just reminded us that God has made us alive in Christ and raised us up to the heavenly places with Christ. But Paul concludes by stating again what he's already said several times that God gives salvation to us by his grace alone through faith. And just in case that statement in itself is not clear, Paul adds then a list of affirmations and denials, if you will, to make it crystal clear. He says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. These are familiar words But I pray that as we pause and as we look at them carefully this morning, our hearts would be renewed in joy and assurance of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's break it down. Paul begins by declaring that salvation is by grace. As a reminder, God's grace is his undeserved favor. And so in saying that we are saved by grace, Paul is saying that God's kindness is brings him to offer us a salvation which we have done nothing to deserve. A salvation he offers to us through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. God does not identify those trying to be good and show a little extra grace in the face of our mistakes. This morning in our new members class, our elder Rick Anderson reminded us that God doesn't grade on a curve. I think that's how we often Think about it, maybe, that, well, we're trying our best, and surely God will recognize that effort. I remember a professor in seminary who prided himself that if he didn't grade on a curve, no one had ever gotten higher than a 42% on his test. (laughs) That's maybe pretty accurate, uh, although we would score even less than that compared to God's holiness, because God does not give us a list of things to do and see how we measure up, and we can thank God that he does not work that way. Because we've just been reminded at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 that we in ourselves are sinful, incapable of meeting the perfect standards of a God who is pure and who is holy. And so if we are going to be saved, God needs to do much more than grade on a curve. God must give us that salvation out of the utter graciousness of his care. But Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the early pastors at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, felt that no definition can adequately describe for us the grace of God. And so when he came to Ephesians 2.8, rather than giving a definition, he told the following story. He said, in one of the worst slums in London in the 19th century, there was a social worker named Henry Morehouse. Morehouse was walking home through this slum one evening as he saw a little girl come out of a shop carrying a clay pitcher full of milk. And Perhaps in her haste or clumsiness, she slipped and fell and the clay pitcher broke into several pieces and the milk spilled out into the gutter. The girl burst into tears crying repeatedly, mommy will whip me, mommy will whip me. Well, Morehouse went over and tried to comfort the girl and he suggested that this clay pot was only broken into a couple of pieces and so perhaps they could fit the pot back together and fix it. And so they tried, and a couple of times they got the pot back together, but of course, as soon as they went to lift it up or do anything with it, it fell apart again. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get the pot back together, and so finally the girl fell into inconsolable tears. And so Morehouse made a decision. He picked that girl up, and he carried her to a shop that sold pottery, and he bought her, with his money, a new pitcher. And then still carrying her, he carried her back to the milk shop, and he bought for her a new pitcher of milk and filled it up. And then still carrying her, he asked her where she lived, and he carried her all the way home, and he set her on the threshold and opened the door for her. And he said to her, now do you think your mommy will whip you? And she said, oh no, this pitcher is much better than the one we had before, This is God's grace. In a similar way, we broke God's creation, sinning against Him and ruining our ability to please and glorify Him. And no amount of effort on our part can ever put the pieces back in such a way that we could do what God had created us to do. And so God rejects all those efforts. But instead, like Morehouse, not because of anything in us, God chose to pay the price Himself for what we had broken. By sending Jesus to the cross in our place. God saved us from punishment. God restored our heart's desire to come home. God makes us new creations that, as the girl said, are much better than the ones we had before. And God carries us all throughout the entire process. He does all that for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross, the death we deserved to die in our place. And then He raises Him back to life, that we might have new life, that He might send His Spirit to change our hearts and remake us in His image, though we didn't ask for it, and we didn't deserve it, and we did nothing to earn it. And that is God's grace. Well, Paul says God's salvation comes entirely by God's grace to us. But then he adds that this gift of grace, God's salvation that he has given to us, must be received through faith. And this is an important addition because God's gift does not automatically apply to everyone in the world. It must be received by faith in Jesus to be ours. Well, what is faith? Again, we come to a very common word we use often. I was talking to a neighbor recently, and this neighbor mentioned to me, actually three or four times in a a brief conversation, that in the face of a pandemic, what you really need is faith. In a lot of ways, I would agree, but it became clear after a few minutes that by faith, what he meant was a willingness to live life with optimism, that things will work out rather than in fear. Such optimism, of course, may be more pleasant than living in anxiety, but it's really quite useless in any practical sense. Maybe a mindset, but it's not looking to anything that can give us any real confidence or reason to be optimistic. Biblical faith is not a sense of optimism. Biblical faith is not just a general belief that things will work out in the end. Biblical faith involves three things. Faith involves knowledge. It involves knowing some facts that are true, that Jesus really was the Son of God, that He came and died on the cross and rose again for our sins. But biblical faith doesn't just involve the knowledge of facts. It also involves our assent that those facts are true and that we need them, that I am a sinner and I need Jesus' death and resurrection myself. It involves an assent to those truths. A sense of our own need. And thirdly, biblical faith involves commitment. It involves entrusting our lives to Jesus as our only hope for salvation so that we give ourselves up to Him. After all, we may say we believe that the magician can safely saw that woman in half, but that doesn't mean we're willing to get in the box ourselves. And biblical faith a sense to the truth of the facts of who Jesus is and what he has done. It recognizes that we need him ourselves, and it entrusts ourselves, it commits ourselves to Jesus as our only hope and as our Savior. But even in mentioning faith, Paul is worried that the door might crack open to suggest that something about our salvation rests on ourselves and our great decision to decide to believe in Jesus Maybe there's something we've contributed to our salvation. And so Paul quickly slams that door and clarifies that this process of salvation by grace through faith is not your doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson, I think, put it well when he said, faith is indeed our response, but it is not our contribution." God does not believe for us, faith is our activity, but it is not in us by nature to believe and so faith needs to be effected in us by God so that faith itself is His gift. And it is thanks to God's work in us that we are, as Paul says in Romans 3, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received through faith. That is the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Salvation is by grace, God's goodness and kindness towards us to be received by faith, our activity, but itself a gift from God. And I don't want us to miss for a second how significant this is because all around the world right now, many are seeking to do what is necessary to achieve eternal life. Millions of Westerners all around us right now are trying to give enough money or time or do enough right to deserve heaven and not hell. Millions of Easterners right now will seek to deny themselves and and seek peace and achieve oneness with God. And tomorrow night, as the calendar turns to April 13th, millions of Muslims, as Ramadan begins, will try, as one hadith has put it, to fast and hope, to be considered as pure as the day they emerged from their mother's womb. But how in the world can anything we do, no matter how much we do it, make us as pure as the day that we were merged from our mother's womb? How can we overcome our sins? Do we really, have we honestly looked at our hearts? Have we honestly looked at ourselves and our efforts? We know we can't do enough. There's nothing we could do to overcome our sins and earn God's favor. Salvation must be of grace. And God's grace has been offered, not in a Western religion, but in one man, Jesus Christ, who came for the whole world to take the punishment we deserved and offer eternal life, if we will but receive it through faith. That is the glory of the gospel. But I think... Maybe it's worth us pausing for just a minute to remember how important this verse is for each of us to remember each day. This verse ought to remind us that arrogance and the Christian should be like oil and water. They should never mix. Because if we truly understand who we are apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, and if we truly understand what Paul is telling us here, that we are saved completely and entirely by the grace and goodness of God, then how could possibly, could pride enter our hearts? Except that it does, often. Think about all the ways that we begin to look down on others and think of ourselves as better than them. Maybe we boast or look down on others because we have our theology, right? And they don't. And so we start to think that our good theology is meritorious, at least in the pecking order of God's people. Maybe we look at our fellow Christians and shake our heads at their sin. Of course, we we know we're sinners as well, but we can't believe they're sinning in those ways. And we begin to think of ourselves as better than our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or we can look at the world. We can look at the world around us, and instead of seeing a world without any peace or hope, we begin to despise the world for its immorality and to elevate ourselves as better than them. We are all guilty of the ways that pride can enter our hearts, and this should not be Yes, of course, we should stand in opposition to injustice and wickedness, but even as we do so, there should be no room for arrogance or pride in the heart of the believer who is saved by grace alone. And then, of course, it's also so easy for us to to slip into thinking that our good decisions in some ways earn the favor of God. Some of us may do this by finding our assurance that we're in a good place based on coming to church, or the number of good things we've done, or the ways we've given to others. Some of us slip into thinking this way when we struggle under the burden that we're constantly disappointing God and we're not doing enough to keep him happy with us. Others of us may struggle with this by thinking that God ought to bless us given the way we're living and doing the right things these days, and, and we think that there's something wrong in God if he's not blessing us the way we deserve. Whatever camp we may find ourselves in, to have true biblical assurance and joy in the salvation God has given us, we need to remember day by day and hour by hour that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith and what Jesus has done for us. This is not our doing that no one might boast. Well, this is what God has given to us by his grace. But maybe this raises some questions. Maybe if salvation, we wonder, is by grace through faith alone, then does it even matter how we live? Could we sin as much as we want and it wouldn't matter since salvation is given to us as a gift? This is a question that's been on Paul's mind ever since he first started preaching the gospel. Maybe you remember Romans chapter 6 after he's declared this same gospel of salvation by grace through faith. He comes to Romans 6 and he asks, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, says Paul. And Paul's coming to address the same question here in Ephesians 2 verse 10. So if you look down to verse 10 and our remaining few minutes together, let's see that not only is salvation a gift from God to us, it is also the work of God in us. For Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God's grace does not just involve God forgiving us or giving us eternal life. It also involves God's active work in us to refashion us and to make us new creations. Just as God, the master craftsman of the universe, created the world in the beginning and just as He created it very good And just as He created it to reflect His beauty and His glory, so God is at work now in His people, creating them anew in Christ Jesus, creating them very good, creating them again to reflect His character and His glory. And I would argue that there are a few images in Scripture for the believer that are more encouraging than this one. If we have received God's salvation by faith, God, the source of all artistry, the source of all creativity, the source of all craftsmanship, like an expert carpenter or watchmaker or potter, is now at work in us right now, shaping us to be His workmanship, or as one translation puts it, as His masterpieces. To be very good new creations that show His skill. Creations who will do the good works that He has fashioned for us to do which he has actually prepared beforehand for us to do as his people. In other words, the godliness of those who are in Christ is due only and entirely to God's work in them, even as they, of course, are the ones who are living out this godliness in their lives. and Just like faith itself was our activity, but God's work in us, So walking in good works becomes our activity, but not our contribution. For it is God himself who is working in us. It's he who has crafted us, he who has created us, and he has called us to do them. And so he gets all the glory. John Stott, a commentator, shares a memory of the retirement of one of his professors at Cambridge. And at his retirement ceremony, a portrait was unveiled of this professor. And as he looked at the portrait, this professor made this comment. He said that he believed that in the future, people who looked at this painting would not ask, who is the man in that painting, but would ask, who painted that painting? It's a beautiful compliment to the artist, but it's a perfect summary of Ephesians 2.10. For anyone who sees any person living out the good works prepared for us in Christ will not look at us and say, wow, what a man, what a woman. But rather, what a God who has fashioned such workmanship from mere sinners. So may we never minimize or forget the extent of what God has offered to us and is doing in us through Christ. I think we, we see it so clearly if we look at this whole passage in Ephesians 2. If you look back up to verses 1 and 2, Paul talked about the way we walk. And when he talks about the way we walk, he's not talking about our gait, he's talking about our lifestyle. On our own, as he says in verses 1 and 2, we walk in trespasses, in sins. But if you look down to the very last phrase in verse 10, we have a new way to walk, a new lifestyle in which we live. We walk in the good works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And if we ask ourselves, how in the world does this change in lifestyle come about in a person like me? The answer is certainly not by my great efforts. It's found in verse 4 in the main clause of this passage. We walked in sin But God made us alive with Jesus. By grace you have been saved so that now we walk in the good works that he has prepared for us and that he has created in us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the way that good works show up in the lives of a person like me. It's through his grace and work. Now maybe all this talk of Christians being crafted by God may fall a bit flat for some because most likely you know a christian or two who seems to fall awfully short of a glorious image of jesus maybe you've known firsthand being hurt by the sin of other believers and maybe we're tempted to think sometimes if god is the craftsman he he should have, could have done a better job with them maybe the person you're thinking of though is you maybe you're ashamed at the remaining sin you see in yourself and so here we need to remember that the full beauty of God's workmanship will be seen in full on the last day when we stand before Christ. It is not perfected and completed now. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the church in heaven will be God's art gallery, displaying the full glory of his workmanship in his people. But the church on earth is his studio, it's his workshop. The work is still in progress. There may appear now to be loose ends random colors, shapes we can't identify, blocks of stone that don't look like anything at all. Maybe they look downright ugly. And so we're to bear with one another and be patient with one another, to encourage one another and correct one another and call one another to love and good works. Now, as we wait for the final day to appear, when God's workmanship will be brought to completion and we will finally and fully be crafted into the masterpiece He's planned by His Spirit, through His grace in Jesus Christ alone. But even while we recognize that, this passage also helps us to see why, though salvation is by grace through faith alone, Scripture also says that at the same time, good works are necessary for salvation. Necessary not to bring salvation, not to cause salvation, but necessary as the fruit and the evidence that God the Creator is at work in us. This week, I was reading an article about Marines. I've never been a Marine, so some of you may know more about this than I do. But the article was talking about some of the habits that Marines develop that often continue into civilian life after their service. Now, it would be an insult to any Marine to say that if I were to just adopt these four or five habits, I could therefore be considered a Marine. Well, of course not. That's not the case at all doing certain habits doesn't make you a Marine. But if you were a Marine, because of the training that you've had and the situation you've involved in, you develop habits that are the fruit or the evidence of your training. And in the same way, that is what Paul is saying here. No good work will ever earn your salvation. But because of God's work in you, if you are His, you will reflect His character in the fruit of the good works that He has prepared for you to do and is working in you by the work of His Spirit. The late seminary professor John Gertzner, I think, put it well when he said, You cannot for one solitary moment say anything other than nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We are justified and saved by grace through faith alone. But if we really cling to that cross, if we really do what we say we do in clinging to Christ, then the work of the Lord will be evident in us by His Spirit. That is the joy of God's work in us. That salvation is entirely of grace, a gift given to us, but it is also a work of God happening in us. And As we conclude this morning, maybe each one of us need to remember different sides of this Some of you may be weighted down by your own failures and what you need to remember is that salvation is accomplished for you by Jesus and given to you as a gift to be received by faith alone. Throw yourselves upon Jesus. Rest upon Him and His completed work on the cross for you. Others of you though may be living life your own way. You may be presuming on God's grace. And the question for you is to examine your heart. And see if you have committed yourself in faith to God through Christ. Others of you may have never trusted Christ before. And this morning may be your chance to receive this gift of salvation from Jesus for the first time. But whatever side of this question you may be on, the main point we all need to hear is exactly the same. It is not a question of how much we are doing. It is a question of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For it is, after all, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thanks be to God for His work in Christ. Father. I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed again this morning by this precious news. That you in your own goodness and kindness sent your son Jesus to the cross to die in our place. And rise again that we might be saved. To send your spirit to change our hearts and to remake us as new creations. And how we thank you that if we have received Christ by faith, you are at work in us enabling us to do the good works you have prepared beforehand so that you get all the glory. And so our great prayer this morning is that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus and you would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.